You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Adrian Martin. Adrian is an associate professor of philosophy, politics, and economics at Claremont McKenna College. She writes, speaks, and teaches about moral emotions, interpersonal relationships, and the social and political arrangements in which they are embedded. She is the author of how we hope moral psychology and she is currently editing the rootlich handbook of love and philosophy in this episode we talk about hope its influence or motivation its importance or unimportance and what it means to hope in humanity hello adrian welcome to the unmute podcast how are you doing today i'm well thanks maisha thanks for having me thanks for coming on how did you get interested in philosophy Mm, I have an origin story. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of a cheesy one. Uh, so when I was in high school, I started reading things like the Tao of physics and the dancing woolly masters and sort of wanted to figure out the meaning of existence. And I went to college planning to double major in philosophy and physics. And then I discovered that I would have to take classes on Friday to do that double major. And so I didn't. And instead, I dropped physics and I switched to Italian. I went abroad uh, to Italy and had culture shock. And while I was living in Italy, I decided that the meaning of life was um, to be understood through ethics, that it was about how people can live together, not about sort of the fundamental metaphysical constituency of the universe. So that's uh so was it was it the cultural shock there that led you to that kind of inquiry? Yes, I think so. I think it I think it was sort of suddenly experiencing in a visceral way on a daily basis that I could feel like I wasn't understanding what was going around me in just an ordinary way. So I'm interested in like why the drop in physics and why not? I mean, some people may think, well, you didn't take the Friday class, but maybe you'll still have the yearning to do kind of some kind of philosophy of physics or some kind of why, why the drop in physics totally. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I actually maintained a bit of an interest in philosophy of math. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between philosophy of math and philosophy and like metaethics, which is one of my specializations. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the details were that I had to take Calc 2. And in order to take Calc 2 during the week, rather than having a Friday recitation, I would have had to take it with this graduate student who was not a good teacher. And I just found it completely a baffling class. And so I just dropped that. But I would have had to have that in order for the physics major. Yeah. So it's not not a decision making process I would recommend to college students. Uh huh. OK. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about ethics. So you have been doing work on hope for a while. You have a book that already came out and a forthcoming book. So, so let's, let's talk about hope. So my first question is, what is hope? So it seems like a simple question, but just by reading your work, it seems that several people have done work on this issue and they have given several accounts of hope and you also have your own view. So tell me, you know, what are the ways in which people have tried to talk about hope? Why do you reject those approaches? And, and what is your view? So there's a lot of reasons that a person might ask that question. 
What is hope? What prompted it for me was wanting a deeper and clearer understanding of how hope influences people's reasoning and motivation. So uh, in my book, a big part of what I was aiming to do was understand hope as a mental state rather than, say, as a religious stance or as a social phenomenon. So the philosophical and psychological work on hope has had a boom in recent years. So there's a lot of options on the table, but it's probably still fair to divide up the views into two rough categories. There's what I call the orthodox definition, which you'll find in a lot of modern philosophers like Descartes and Spinoza and Hobbes and so on. This kind of view, it sees hope as basically a combination of a desire. So you want what you hope for and some kind of belief that what you desire is attainable. So you think what you hope for is possible, or maybe you assign a probability estimate to it between zero and one, something along those lines. So that's one set of views. And there's variations within that rough description. And then there's those who include me who think that you need something more to get to hope. So for me, the fact that you need more is most salient when I think about cases where two people both know that what they deeply desire is highly unlikely. So I think it was Luke Bovins who pulled the Shawshank Redemption into the philosophical literature. So so in that book, you've got two prisoners, one cynical and one hopeful, and they both yearn to be free and they both believe that the possibility of attaining the freedom is vanishingly small. But if one is cynical and one is hopeful, there has to be something more than the yearning and the possibility to get to hope. So my view, which I articulate in the book, is that the something more is an additional attitude that the hopeful person takes toward the possibility of, say, freedom, right? So he sees that vanishingly small possibility as enough to go forward with, as enough to permit him to talk and dream about freedom and even in the book to build a pretty wild plan around it. So the cynical prisoner doesn't do any of that. He just tries not to think about the possibility of freedom. So that's where my view sort of fits into the various options. So President Obama had a hope slogan. And so I'm wondering, based on your approach, did he get it right? Are we to look at that slogan, strangely given your view? So, you know, actually what got me interested in hope was in part the, the, the hope rhetoric in the campaigns between Obama and Hillary Clinton. So I was working, I was at a, doing a postdoc at the NIH at the time, and there was a lot of talk about hope there. And so that started, that got me kind of interested in, well, what is this thing that everybody thinks is so important, but everybody's kind of worried about it? Like, am I giving you false hope? That kind of worry. So there was that kind of in the air. And then also there was Obama's hope campaign. And he's certainly not the first politician to put the concept of hope right at the center of his campaign, but but it was very prominent. And then there was Hillary Clinton saying, you know, hope is not a plan. And I, I started thinking, it's really interesting that that some communities find appeals to hope very motivating in a very concrete and kind of pragmatic way, whereas other people look at hope and they, they, as soon as you start talking about hope, they think you're talking about sort of fantasies and dreams. And so that also made me think I wanted to understand what hope is such that there could be such a broad disagreement about it. So there's a Christian scripture that talks about how faith without works is dead. And I know you differentiate between faith and hope, and we'll talk about that later. But I wonder about the whole works piece to hope. So it seems that if I hope that there could be a window of justification for me to be passive. So I'm, I'm wondering, what is the relationship between hope and motivation? That is to say, does hope influence motivation? If so, how does it? And when does hope not influence it? 
So like I said, I started thinking about hope mostly because I wanted to understand how it influences practical deliberation and motivation, right? Because that was the worry at the NIH was that it would lead patients to make bad decisions or to enroll in studies where they didn't understand the risks, that kind of thing. So there's this very common view, I think, that hope is like this special kind of battery. Cheshire Calhoun sometimes calls it the energizer bunny view of hope, right? So like it just keeps going and going and going. So to give someone hope is to like give them a boost and to take away hope is to be some kind of energy suck. But like you say, it's not too hard to think of cases where hope seems to make a person passive. One of the things I rant about a bit in the book is that I think, especially in the U.S., there's a number of pretty powerful forces socializing people to be passive hopers or maybe misguided hopers. So that's leading us to hope in a way that primarily involves fantasy without any real attention to or uptake of what it would take to actually realize those dreams. So I think get rich quick schemers are often in the grips of these kind of hopes. So you have this sort of vision of this dreamy vision, but there is no connection between that and the actual means that it would take to achieve it. So the book is called How We Hope. And that's for me the, can- the key to answering this kind of question. So we can hope in ways that are productive and we can also hope in ways that are not productive, but that are sort of distracting or contribute to errors like confirmation bias. And we can let hopeful fantasy substitute in for age. I mean, I think we can also hope in ways that are not productive, but that are just nevertheless sort of harmless occasional escapism. I don't think there's anything problematic with that. But I do think a lot of people develop a disposition to hope in these ways that are very distracting from the actual facts on the ground. So what are some ways that we can hope that's pretty productive or pretty positive? Well, I mean, I don't feel like it's a very deep insight here, but I mean, other than my immediate thought, well, if I'm hoping that I get a tenure track job, it could be the case that, oh, I'm, I'm going to work on journal articles. If I do everything that's required for, in order for that to happen. Is that just it, right? I just do the necessary steps or is it something else? I think the issue here is really sort of, like I said, dispositional and a matter of character. So it's a less a matter of like when it comes to any individual thing I'm hoping for, I should think about what are the ways that I should hope for that, you know, that I should be realistic about the possibilities of it being achieved and realistic about what it would take to bring it about that. Yes, that's all true. But like I said, it doesn't seem like a deep insight. But I think the deeper point is that we have to work on our characters, really, that we have to try to develop habits of attention and habits of, I mean, for me, I think this is probably more autobiographical than I would like, but a whole lot of what I talk about in the book is the relationship between fantasy and hope, right? So I think for a lot of people to hope for something is to spend a lot of time sort of imagining what it would be like to have it. And I think we're really encouraged to think that way. You know, if you look at all of the self-help literature that really surged in the 80s and early 90s, a lot of it really just concretely recommends sit and imagine the thing you want. Have a vision board. And that alone is in itself seems not problematic. But the but the problem is if that's what your hope consists in, it's too easy to think that, well, now you've kind of done the work of hope. But I just, I think that we should think of hope as much more virtuous hope, useful hope, as much more closely intertwined with planning activities. Can we hope too much? 
So, I mean, that's kind of what I'm talking. What is too much, right? So a person can be unrealistically optimistic about the things they want. And a lot of people think that's hoping too much. So that's what you find in the bioethics literature, for example, is people who think that the dangerous hopes are the ones that involve just believing that your cure is more likely than it is or that your medical benefit is more likely than it is. But to me, unrealistic optimism and hope are pretty different things. So a person can hope too much in the sense that they hope in a way that substitutes for agency. But I think that's nothing intrinsic to hope itself. That's hoping badly. And I also think a person can be guided by very powerful hopes in a way that works very well for them. It seems to me like there isn't a single dimension along which you can say too much, too little. And that's kind of the point of the analysis that I give, right? So that, well, there's definitely desires and beliefs involved in hope, but there is also this seeing the possibility of your hope as enough to go forward with. And that gives you a different dimension of evaluation. How much are you pinning on it, to put it in sort of ordinary language, right? And what I want to say is that a lot of people tend to think that hope, to hope too much would be to either assign too high a probability to the hoped for outcome or to want it too much. But I actually think the more likely way that hope goes wrong is when people pin too much on their hope and that you can do that even with a good probability estimate and even with a perfectly appropriate desire. So tell me, what's the difference between hope and faith? And I was even thinking about now wishing. So what is the difference between hope, faith, and wishing? Okay, I'll always start with just hope and faith. So in, in Christian theology, hope and faith are two of the three theological virtues. And they're sort of the volitional and intellectual faces of trust in the existence and grace of God. For me, and I'm an atheist, but you know, raised in a broadly Judeo-Christian culture. So for me, I think of faith as a kind of ironclad hope. I think there's an attitude that doesn't necessarily have to have God or anything supernatural as its object, but that still deserves to be called faith. So you might, you might say it's hoping for, you know, not exactly what. Jonathan Lear talks about what he calls transcendental hope in connection with Chief Plenicu, who was the leader of the Crow Nation during the period where they survived colonial onslaught. And they survived it by changing their way of life. So Chief Plenicu, Lear argues, uh, had a vision of a Crow future where although what it would mean to survive and still be the Crow Nation sort of outstripped the conceptual resources, it was nevertheless a vision and it was a guiding one. So that's what I would call faith. I'd call it hoping for something that you're not yet equipped to conceive. Interesting. And wishing? Yeah, I don't have a ready analysis of wishing. So Aristotle says that wishing is much like hope, but not bound by the probabilities, right? So you can wish for something that you take to be impossible, whereas to hope for something, you have to take it to be at least within the realm of possibility. And that sounds about right to me, that it's a, it's a very similar kind of attitude that it's going to involve wanting something, but that it doesn't preclude wanting something that you take to be essentially impossible. And I think it probably makes sense to say that wishing also has some additional attitude involved. It's not just wanting, but it's wanting and then taking that desire is enough to justify thinking about it or, you know, crying over it or, right. I'm thinking about the possibility notion, going back to hope here. And it, it makes me think, well, it seems like anything is really possible. I mean, as a, you know, there's certain like laws of physics we, we can't get across. But you think about a poor person could indeed become a billionaire. So I'm just wondering about, are there boundaries to these possibilities? Or is it is it just boundless? As a, you know, of course, the, the boundaries would be 
like I said, you know, laws of physics and laws of nature. But with, with hoping, is it limitless? I actually don't even think that necessarily hoping is bound by the probabilities of the laws of nature, the laws of physics, right? Because, well, if, you know, if you're someone who believes in supernatural forces, then you can hope for the intervention by those supernatural forces, right? So I actually think it's it's subjective uh, what the relevant probability or what the relevant conception of possibility is that constrains hope. So someone who's a naturalist is going to be you know, their hopes are going to be bound by what they take to be physically possible. So, or, I mean, maybe one could say that what we're bound by is what we take to be metaphysically possible and naturalists and supernaturalists disagree about what's metaphysically possible. So you, you know that sometimes we place hope in people and this is a distinctive and fundamental way of relating to people interpersonally. What do you mean by this? Yeah. So that's the center of my current work. And I, I sketched it in a programmatic way toward the end of How We Hope. So I, I don't even use the word hope that much anymore, but I'm still talking about the same idea. So, so the idea is that we invest in each other. We can invest a lot of different things in each other. We can invest time, emotions, labor, money. We can invest our care and concern. And I still think it makes sense to lump all of these together under the description, placing hope in a person. Um, and so when we do invest in a person, this is what I am exploring now, we create or strengthen interpersonal bonds. And those include normative bonds like debts and obligations. So like you say, I, I argue that this is a distinctive mode of relation. What I mean is that it's distinctive in the sense that these aren't exactly the same kinds of bonds and obligations that moral philosophers tend to focus on. So they're not rights and perfect duties, for example. So the bond created by a promise has a claim of right at one end of it. Like the promise, he gets to enforce the promise in various ways. Whereas placing hope in a person produces a bond that isn't primarily about having an enforceable claim on a particular action. It's more like uh, having a call upon that person to give atten due attention to the value of the hope as they go about their lives. So that's what I'm investigating right now is thinking about the kinds of interpersonal bonds that aren't attended to within sort of traditional deontic frameworks, but that still have that kind of call and response structure to them. Oh, well, so, you know, you're supporting a friend in their project that seems to give you some kind of, I, maybe claim is too invocative of rights, but it gives you some kind of legitimate influence over them so that like, if they just for no good reason, just completely drop the project in the gutter, you have standing to say, express disappointment in them, right? And it's, it's a special standing, right? Like a, your uninvested bystander had, doesn't get to say, oh, you really let me down, <laughs> right? But you do. If you invested in your friend and then they just kind of squandered your investment without any good reason, then you have the standing to say, you really let me down. And that seems to me like you're expressing an attitude that belongs among Strawson's reactive attitudes, right? So it's not resentment. It's something more like disappointment, but it is nevertheless deeply interpersonal. And I think it plays a huge role in our lives. Do you think that, I don't know if you're willing to make this claim, but part of having an interpersonal relationship with another being is hoping in them to some certain extent. I think it's rare to find an interpersonal relationship that doesn't involve some kind of investment of hope. Right now, I'm thinking about the investment of hope interpersonally as a way of kind of sharing agency. I actually invest my agency in my children, for example. And what that does is sort of charge them with taking up that agency and then using it in certain ways. So so I think most most human relations involve that, but I, I don't know that I think it's you know definitive. 
Why do you think it's important to hope? I don't know if you do. (laughs) 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 But if you do or do not, do you think it's important to hope? And I also wonder, particularly in times of despair, how can we get hope and maintain it? Yeah, it's funny because since the book came out, I keep being surprised to discover that people think I'm this very pro-hope person. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, despite the fact that in the book I make a, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about how hope can make us passive and can substitute for agency and can distract us from important information and can make suicide appear rational, right? I say all these things, and yet I'm still sort of the person I get invited to give talks, and it's clear that people are expecting me to come in and sort of sing the praises of hope. I feel the same way about forgiveness. (laughs) I I feel the same way about forgiveness. Yeah, yeah. No, I I can see that. So is it important to hope? So as far as hoping for particular outcomes, like say last year I was on a panel talking about hope in the Anthropocene. So imagine hoping for a particular outcome like a solution to climate change. I would mostly recommend against that hope. Or I would recommend against it unless you are like an unusually strongly pragmatic, pessimistic person. Like, I think that's the key to Barack Obama and why his hope is actually very functional is that I think he's a very pragmatic, pessimistic person. Um, Yeah, I know. It's because he talks about hope, right? And because he works really hard to bring about change in the world. But I think that the way that he does it, it's clear. I mean, surely the notion that he's very pragmatic is not a, a new one. And I think that he, if you look at the way he approached various projects when he was in office, he was always prepared for the worst. Okay. So anyway, so if you think if you're that kind of person, and I think if you mostly interact with and influence other people who are like that, then, you know, go for it, like hope for whatever you want. But the thing is that I think your hope is likely to be either largely indistinguishable from your plans or to take up very little emotional space in your life. More commonly, like if you're a bit of a dreamer, you know, if you've grown up on a steady diet of Disney and rom-coms and Forrest Gump, or if you're going to be heard by a, a lot of people who have, then I recommend against invoking hope in connection with efforts to mitigate like particular various disasters that we currently face. I think that it's, it's just passive making and distracting. So that's kind of the bad news part of my view. I mean, the good news part of my view is that, I mean, I do think interpersonal hope is is where it's at. So Cor- as you know, Cornell West talks about being the hope, right? And I say that's where it is, right? Figure out who's invested hope in you and live up to those hopes and invite more people to place hope in you and place hope in other people and create and strengthen those bonds and obligations because those are the things that make life meaningful and those are the things that give you reason to do shit, right? Even when despair is like obviously rational. That's the kind of hope that I think is important and that we need to try to maintain. So as you work on your latest project, Hope and Humanity, is that largely what the project is entailing? Yeah, very much. So there's, I mean, oh God, what is this project? It's huge, huge, but, but yeah, so that's the core idea. And then there's various offshoots from that. Some of the more kind of digestible chunks of it have to do with focusing on particular emotional attitudes that I think are involved in these kinds of interpersonal investments. So I just finished working on a paper about gratitude. And I think feeling an obligation of gratitude is, you know, a mark of having been invested in. And so actually, Agnes 
Collard at University of Chicago has this view of gratitude where, and this is where I sort of got this idea of thinking about investing hope as a kind of shared agency. So she thinks that gratitude is kind of the way of manifesting that you're carrying on the invested agency. This isn't the way she would put it. So I'll just caveat all of that. Um, but it, but the idea origi- originates with her. So if I display generosity towards someone and it's sort of all things considered, seems like the kind of circumstance where that would generate some sort of obligation of gratitude. One of the puzzles in the literature about gratitude is that everybody would insist, I have no right to gratitude. Like I don't get to demand gratitude. And that would just completely undermine the generosity. Nevertheless, like if the person is completely ungrateful, they have, I would say, let me down in a certain way, right? And metaphorically speaking, what they've done is sort of dropped the agency that I invested in them, right? So I, I gave them some piece of me, you know, it could be a piece of my money or it could be my emotional concern as a resource for them to use in some project. I can't complete that project on my own. It's their project, but I put my resources into it. And so now I'm sharing my agency with them. And their gratitude is a way of marking the value of that investment. That's the general idea. What are some other emotions or attitudes? So one that I plan to turn my attention to pretty soon is being proud of another person's, right? So that seems to me a really interesting, there's been plenty of attention to pride in the philosophical literature, but it's usually pride in oneself. Um, And I'm really interested in what's going on when we're proud of another person. Someone else has accomplished something and yet we have this kind of special relationship to it, right? And, uh, you know, my suspicion is that, that again, that's a case of having invested hope in that person in some It's interesting because it would seem like we'll find it strange that someone who, let's just say, being loose with language here, who didn't believe that you could accomplish a task after you have accomplished the task. say, you know what? I'm proud of you. (laughs) Right. That was that would seem odd. But someone who has always believed in your dreams and believed that you can do it once you achieve it. I mean, it makes sense. Right. Uh, That that person would say that they're, they're proud of you. Yeah. And what you described there is what I sometimes call the who are you to test. How do we know that these attitudes are part of these directed interpersonal bonds, right? It's between you and me, not anybody else. Well, how can we tell that? Is it if someone came, someone else came along and said, oh, I'm so proud of you. But you go, you know, who are you to say that? You know, and the same thing goes with disappointment, right? Not just anyone gets to be disappointed in my personal failings. You know, some bystander can't come up and say, oh, you really let me down. And I say, well, who, who are you to say that? It has to be someone who's bound to me in certain ways. And I do think it is through this investment of hope. So I will end with this question. And given our conversation so far, I kind of have a guesstimation of what you're going to say. What are some things that you're hoping for right now? Or not? (laughs) Right now, I'm hoping Doug Jones wins the Alabama Senate race today. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for today. And when people listen to this, which will be in a couple of days after we get the election results, (laughs) we'll we'll see if they have something to be proud of as far as Alabama is concerned. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) Well, Adrian, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.